Hello and welcome to the AMSSM Sports MedCast. I'm your host, Dr. Seth Smith from the University of Florida Department of Orthopedics, Division of Sports Medicine. Before I introduce our guest, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank all the healthcare workers throughout our country and world who are bravely doing their jobs to save patients in our fight against the COVID-19 pandemic that has caused such loss in our world. While sports are certainly a great part of our world, our focus at this point in time continues to be directed at fighting this pandemic. I'd like to transition into our AMSSM Sports MedCast, where we will be discussing exertional heat illness with an emphasis on exertional heat stroke with two experts in the field of exertional heat illness. I am honored to introduce both who I consider friends, colleagues, mentors, and amazing leaders of people. First, Dr. Douglas Casa. Dr. Casa is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of Connecticut, Director of Athletic Training, Education, and Chief Executive Officer of the Corey Stringer Institute, where he leads a team of experts who study sports safety, sudden death in sports, and exertional heat illness, exertional heat stroke. Next, Dr. Fran O'Connor. Dr. O'Connor is Professor and Chair, Military and Emergency Medicine, and Associate Director for the Consortium on Health and Military Performance, Uniformed Services University, where he has uh, led sports medicine education and research for the military for over 20 years. He is a colonel in the United States Army and is a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. He has received the Corey Stringer Institute's Life-Saving Research Award and the ACSM Citation Award. I'd like to devote the majority of our time tonight on discussing exertional heat stroke, which is defined as a core body temperature of greater than 105 degrees Fahrenheit with associated central nervous system changes. Its importance derives from the fact that it is one of the top three causes of death in athletes and fortunately 100% preventable if recognized and treated immediately at the time of presentation. For completeness sake, I think it is important to note the other forms of exertional heat illnesses include exercise-associated muscle cramps, heat syncope, and heat exhaustion. I had the opportunity to work with both of you on the consensus statement on the pre-hospital care of exertional heat stroke, and the first question I will direct to Dr. Casa. Dr. Casa, we know that most episodes of exertional heat stroke occur in the pre-hospital setting, and timely recognition and management leads to minimal morbidity with no significant mortality. Can you walk us through the basic paradigm for the pre-hospital care of exertional heat stroke? Absolutely. Thank you for the intro, Seth. I'm honored to be with, obviously, some dear colleagues and also to work with so many close colleagues in AMSSM with a podcast like this. Um, So first, let's just kind of set the background of that 2018 document. the, The long struggle has been that the team physicians and the athletic trainers have a really good handle on exertional heat stroke, um, but then they're handing off care to EMT, EMS professionals, and emergency room physicians who are not following the same protocols um, for the recognition and treatment of exertional heat stroke. So our goal with the 2018 document is to help try to bridge that gap. So we brought together um, some of the leading um, team physicians, emergency room physicians, and athletic trainers to try to bridge some of those knowledge gaps and um, try to have a better working relationship between these organizations. Um, but when it comes to the, the basic four steps um, for um, recognizing and treating exertional heat stroke um, in, a, in a sport setting or a field setting, whether it be for a warfighter or a laborer or an athlete, um, we have to take our, uh, one step back and make sure we understand that our ultimate goal is to get their body temperature under 103 in 30 minutes. So within 30 minutes of collapse, our ultimate goal is to get them under 103. If they're under 103, 
you know, we're beyond the point where we're worrying about cell damage and um, we're optimizing their chance for not just surviving but recovering without any long-term complications. So that, that when we're setting up a, a protocol like this, we have to remember this 30-minute window. So first, we want to recognize it as quickly as possible. So when someone's running out to an athlete or, or coming to an athlete or, or, or a warfighter or a laborer, whoever is caring for these people is ruling out, first of all, cardiac, obviously, thinking if they have any other medical conditions like asthma or um, diabetes or other um, sickle cell trait or other reasons why they might be struggling on the field. And if, if, it, if they don't have other obvious medical conditions and it's not cardiac and they've collapsed during intense exercise in the heat, we should be strongly considering the likelihood of, that it could be a heat stroke. Second is getting um, a, a diagnostic, accurate core body temperature measurement. And in a field setting, we really have to utilize a rectal temperature. It's the only valid measure um, to use in a field setting um, to have that really key piece of, of data because, you know, you could see the CNS dysfunction, but that could be caused by a multitude of things um, in these settings. So confirming that CNS dysfunction with the high body temperature is number two. Number three is instituting um, the best possible cooling modality that you could use um, in the situation that you're in. And obviously we hope that you've planned ahead for if it's in a controlled setting like a football practice or a lot of basic training situations in the military, can you use cold water immersion? Is it there? If it is, getting the person, the heat stroke victim, in the cold water immersion as fast as possible because um, that has the best cooling rate by far. Um, and um, if it's done really effectively with vigorously rotating the water, really cold water, and most of the body in the water, you can get upwards of 0.35 degrees Celsius per minute cooling. And even if it's just done well, it can be 0.25 degrees Celsius per minute. Um, now, other re remote settings or while you're bringing the person to definitive care in the military, like a taco or burrito method, can work quite well. Um, but ultimately, if it's possible, you're trying to do that while you're bringing them to the cold water immersion um, so that you can still have the ultimate pinnacle in terms of cooling rates. And then the fourth concept is the concept of cool first, transport second. And this is really the, the huge paradigm shift for people because you're telling them, people that this medical emergency that they're better off to be treated on site. Um, and, and that's really different than a lot of other medical conditions. So that's the big shift for the EMS, EMT, um, emergency room physicians, getting people thinking that it is better to use the cold water immersion on site, get their temp down, and then you send them to the hospital. Very proud that Connecticut became the first state last year to require EMS and EMTs to continue cold water immersion um, when they arrive if an athletic trainer is delivering that care for a heat stroke um, of a high school athlete. Um, so that is just, that's a huge step forward for us, but obviously it's going to be, require some national effort. So those four steps just to quickly review is to quickly recognize it, um, get an accurate core body temperature, utilize the best cooling modality you can for the situation, preferably cold water immersion if you can plan ahead. And fourth is utilizing the concept of cool first, transport second. Thanks, Doug. I would certainly just add that this is certainly a paradigm shift that the, the literature on this has been pretty clear for many years, but we still continue to have issues in regards to implementing the basic pre-hospital care of exertional heat stroke in certain EMS protocols. Do you or uh, Dr. O'Connor have any, any thoughts in regards to best ways to implement uh, this paradigm shift in regards to interacting with EMS and EMT, et cetera? Interestingly, when we, we deal with EMS, EMT, ER docs, like locally at hospitals in certain towns and cities, we have a lot of success when we get people in the room together. 
But it, you could imagine the exhausting effort of like, you know, whatever there is, 21,000 high schools in America. You know, if you're trying to do it high school by high school or you're trying to do it, you know, league by league or, or whatever it is, or military base by military base, whoever, whatever it is, it's just a lot of effort. So when you can have a state like Connecticut mandate that, that cooling has to continue, that, that now just eliminated the whole fight for Connecticut because now all the athletic trainers have this information and they don't have to argue anymore with EMS, EMT people. Um, but when we do it on an individual basis, we, we always have success because when you spend an hour or two explaining all the data, all the benefits, how it's implemented, other places who have used it successfully, um, people ultimately, you know, come on board. But it's just we need to scale it much larger than this, you know, kind of site-by-site method. Yeah, I would certainly agree. We ha- we've had significant success at a local level and even a regional level uh, where we live here in Florida, but certainly getting it taken care of on a state or national level certainly requires significant policy changes that I think is something that uh, we as sports medicine providers need to continue to push for policy changes, which we'll discuss a bit more in a, in a few minutes. I'd like to mm-hmm. uh, transition a bit, but but really a vital component of the pre-hospital uh, care of exertional heat stroke uh, is an emergency action plan. So I know Dr. O'Connor has extensive experience uh, with his work in the military uh, creating and developing a, uh, an emergency action plan. So, Dr. O'Connor, could you just take a few minutes and describe for us the importance of an emergency action plan and also how to, how to go about developing a strong emergency action plan for exertional heat illness? Yeah, no, I appreciate the uh, the question, Seth. And I want to echo, you know, everything Doug said up front, and, it, and it's really a privilege to be on the call with Doug Casa. Doug and I have been involved in a lot of civilian planning as well as a lot of military planning. I've I've taken Doug to a number of military posts because wherever he goes, he makes a difference. You know, the military has worked for, my goodness, years and years and years at trying to leverage prevention for um, exertional heat stroke, exertional heat illness. Um, But despite that, boy, just even just last year, we had almost 600 heat strokes in the United States military. So heat stroke, unfortunately, is still going to occur. But as Doug will tell you and Doug has written about, it is 100% preventable that you would have a death. So certainly mortality should be something that uh, we don't read about. Uh, We want to do everything we can to limit uh, not only mortality, but also morbidity. I think the other thing uh, I just want to reemphasize what Doug said was uh, the critical component when we put together the emergency action plan and try to limit the morbidity and mortality is this concept that you cool as quickly as possible. So that ultimately is going to be cooling on site. And I think in 2020, everybody knows you cool on site before you move or you're wrong. In terms of the concept of emergency action plan, yeah, I, I've had good fortune in, in writing emergency action plans for, um, for the military at the high school level, at the collegiate level at the university I work at, and uh, with mass participation events. The key with these documents, of course, is they are written. It's written down, and uh, not only is it written down and explaining details with moving a patient from point of injury through the scenario you're going to run, uh, but it's practiced and it's rehearsed, and that practice or rehearsal is documented. Uh, that's going to be critical. And I know with most emergency action plans, in fact, Doug and the Corey Stringer Institute have uh, looked into this and published on it. Uh, many of them just sit on a shelf, but they need to be rehearsed at least annually, at least uh, with the team so that there's no surprises. Um, in our most recent uh, military doctrine that came out, we we described the emergency action plan as a chain of survival, very similar to what we all know with acute cardiac care. 
with uh, basic life support, advanced life support, et cetera, as we move through the system from point of injury. Uh, and that goes right from the uh, stages of prevention to that first collapse. What is going to be the care on site from that immediate person on site to maybe local care on site that might involve advanced cooling with cooling uh, cold water immersion or something to have that effect? Uh, the chain of survival continues with EMS. Uh, what happens there as they wait for the cooling on site? Is there cooling in that vehicle? You know, perhaps with uh, chilled saline, et cetera. What happens in the emergency room? Which emergency room are you going to be taking them to? Is it an emergency room that has uh, the capability for continued cold water immersion or advanced therapies like endovascular cooling? What is the capability of the hospital? You know, does the hospital, hospital have the capability, again, for targeted temperature control, Again, maybe endovascular cooling or other therapies. And the chain of survival continues right through discharge and eventually what I know we're going to talk about, which is a return to play or return to duty. Uh, but with that being said, Seth, and uh, as Doug alluded to, there are a lot of people who are involved in this chain of survival, uh, whether it's the athletic trainer or the medic, the observing uh, first sergeant or coach, all the way through to uh, that first provider, the uh, EMS vehicle, and the emergency room. So I think the key to the emergency action plan is that uh, you've got everybody in the room, just like Doug said. And I know with the, uh, with the Marine Corps marathon algorithms that we've put together and with emergency action plans for the military, uh, we get everybody in the room uh, who, is, who has a stake in the game somewhere along the chain of survival. That's absolutely critical, so there's no surprises. And then when you do the rehearsal, it should also be a very carefully orchestrated rehearsal with all the people, again, who have a stake in the emergency action plan, we want to make sure the phones work, make sure that ambulance crew can actually get into the venue that you're going to be, that the emergency room is going to be available uh, on receipt and have, you know, the appropriate care. So I, I think the keys here with the emergency action plan are uh, first and foremost that it's written and everybody who has a stake in the game and the chain of survival is participating in the emergency action plan uh, development as well as rehearsal. Doug, you have any other thoughts on that with the APs? Oh gosh, no, that's fantastic. I want to reiterate one point, just because I think a lot of doctors, physicians, don't completely understand during their training is n not all cases of heat stroke are preventable. Um, but the, you know, obviously, there's a, a lot of things we can do to reduce the number of heat strokes. So heat acclimatization, body cooling strategies, hydration, proper rest, uh, proper phasing in of activity. Um, a, a lot of other things, you know, work-to-rest ratios based on the environmental conditions. But they're proven strategies for reducing risk. But even if you do everything correctly, you're still going to have exertional heat strokes um, in, in basic training and officer training and athletics um, for laborers. And that is reason is because you have people start new medications. They might be coming, um, have a viral illness at that point. They might have a fever. They might be coming back from an illness. They might be coming back from an injury. Whatever it is, people are going to suffer exertional heat strokes. And that's why what Fran had said, we can't prevent all the cases of heat stroke, but we can prevent, within controlled settings, we can prevent all the deaths, um, any deaths um, happening from heat stroke. And that's why it's so critical that we have this plan in place, you know, and have the emergency action plan and you're rehearsing it. And, you know, I, I know in athletics, you know, whether it be an athletic trainer for a particular sport or in the military at certain bases, there's a lot of turnover you know, sometimes in positions. And it's why it's so important that we have this EAP documented and people are regularly rehearsing it so that information is making it down through all the layers of the system um, so that that stuff is carrying forward even 
if the people are changing positions. Hey, Doug, I would just add one thing, you know, and, and like I echoed there with almost 600 heat strokes in the military, not completely preventable. But I guess I would argue, Doug, that, you know, for the healthcare provider, for the team physician, it is predictable many times. Yeah. Uh, oh, you know, by question. identifying certain conditions. You've published on this. We've published on this. Uh, very predictable, and it's a great opportunity for a physician working with his or her ATC to uh, intervene. Oh, no question. That's a great point because you and I have a lot of experience actually, you know, preventing it, treating it, but also serving as ex expert witness on cases when obviously, um, you know, sometimes things didn't turn out well. Um, you know, there's there's those X factors that are just seem to be ever present. And it's it's almost always the first few days of, of the athletic activ activity or the training, it's people coming back from an illness. Um, it's, it's people um, who are not as well conditioned. It's people like coaches who um, are, you know, are not following accepted protocol, um, you know, or um, things like that, that that seem to permeate time and time again. Well, Fran, thank you so much for reviewing an emergency action plan. The one thing I'll just echo that both of you said is, is not only creating it, but truly rehearsing. And it's amazing the number of things that you can see that you didn't think about. And I've heard Fran present on an emergency action plan numerous times and how detailed um, his presentation is on the things that you really don't think about initially, but until you rehearse these emergency action plans and realize uh, the steps and the components that, uh, that that go into creating an emergency action plan and how important those are. Um, Doug, I'm going to transition to you for the next question. We've had the privilege to partner with each other on numerous items related to exertional heat illness and exertional heat stroke, but one where I feel like we've seen steady progress recently has really been on policy changes for sports safety in the secondary school environment. Um, so kind of a two-part question. One, can you tell the listeners what KSI is currently doing at the state level to improve sports safety? And then uh, also just describe maybe some of your biggest challenges. I know we've had significant challenges working together here in the state of Florida, but I think we've had significant success recently. And then how would you recommend other states in the country go about making policy changes for those that have not currently made them to improve sports safety at the secondary school level? Absolutely, yeah. It's an honor to talk about that because a lot of the listeners, a lot of the team physicians who are going to be listening to this podcast, um, you know, could be involved with the current um, projects that we're doing as we go state by state. So we, we currently are at Corey String Institute, um, for people who don't know, is housed at the University of Connecticut, and we're overseeing a project called TUFS right now, which is an acronym for Team Up for Sports Safety. It's a five-year project where we're visiting all 50 states plus the District of Columbia, so about 10 states a year, um, to work with them on instituting um, improvements to their health and safety standards for high school sports. So we assemble a group of like 20 to 30 people, um, state high school athletic administrators, athletic trainer, key athletic trainers in the state, physicians, um, principals, athletic directors, um, superintendents, um, you know, coaches, different, the key people that would be relevant for these health and safety standards, and um, we get them in a room together. And we've done 13 states so far, and we've had just a massive amount of progress. Um, a, a good example, since we're talking specific to heat stroke, is we've gotten almost 20 states to adapt cold water immersion as a standard for, like, for instance, high school football or um, summer training, um, which is a massive step forward when you think it was zero just a few years ago. Um, we've also made great strides with, um, as we just talked about, um, getting emergency action plans specific to the sports environment being required. A lot of schools have them, but not specific for sports venues. Um, we've got, made a lot of progress with states requiring WBGT, 
um, the environmental monitoring and not just in monitoring it, but obviously then having rules related to the work to rest ratio modifications that you would make based on those readings. Another big area has been heat acclimatization progress um, that we've made. So it's been humbling and wonderful, definitely like the highlight of my own career um, to see this because you, you see these changes and it's influencing obviously thousands and thousands of athletes that, that, that play within those states. Um, so we, we still have like 37 or eight states left. Um, so if any of the physicians are listening and want to get involved, we always have at least four or five, you know, key um, sports medicine physicians in each state attend, usually people who are very active in AMSSM um, or ACSM who assist with this process. But it, it's been exciting. It's been great working with USAF in Florida. Um, you, it's exciting to see your, your governor or your state work really, really hard. Um, and then the governor ultimately signed the requirement for, you know, cold water immersion tubs. Um, but, you know, we've worked together for the last three years on this, and we got, you know, additions for heat acclimatization, coaching education, emergency action plans. Um, so it's, uh, it's a long road, you know, but at least state by state is way better than high school by high school because I'd rather do 51 instead of 21,000. I can't imagine the number, the thousands of hours that, you know, collectively go into each state making these changes and we have seen very slow but steady progress and it's amazing that you know living in the state of florida that leads the country in number of deaths secondary to exertional heat stroke in the secondary school level has taken this long to uh, enact these policy changes but i think it's also very exciting that we have you know finally enacted significant changes that uh, undoubtedly will make a difference in saving lives yeah let me note too that you said challenges and i forgot to address that part um, and I also just want to quickly note and pay thanks to um, the NFL the national, and the National Athletic Trainers Association, in addition to a lot of private fundraising at the Corey Stringer Institute, um, have made this happen. Um, we've raised over $2 million um, so that we um, have the resources to do these, these 51 state visits, because as you can imagine, it's a lot of staff to plan them all out um, and get all the white papers and all the, the work done before then doing the meeting and then working with the states for six, nine, 12 months after to push it through either state high school athletic association legislation or through, um, you know, regular state um, uh, legis legislative channels. As, we, as you saw in Florida, we, we took both of those angles. So anyway, from a challenges perspective, um, to especially stick a little close to home with heat stroke, um, the cool first transport second has been big because some people are very territorial and, and traditional with how, um, you know, when an EMT, EMS arrives that they should you know, um, be the ones to be in control of care. And so it's really been a really shift in the, in the thinking process. Another hurdle has certainly been rectal temperature at the high school setting. That's critical, obviously, because you can't do cool first transport second without rectal temperature because we would have no idea when to take them out of the tub or how long they need to cool for. Um, and some people seem to have an issue with doing rectal temperatures with minors. It's ironic because when I've been in courtrooms and working with judges, and other people, th those people think that actually minors should get better care um, or, the po or at least the best possible care. Um, and obviously getting an accurate um, rectal temperature and starting cooling as fast as possible is, is the most optimal care. Um, and we've made great progress in the country with rectal temperature and cold water immersion. I'll give you an example. When we published a study back in 2010, only 2% of high school athletic trainers were doing rectal temperature. And at the same time, about 20% were doing cold water immersion. Um, and just eight, between eight and nine years later, we've gotten that number up to over 75% doing cold water immersion. 
and over 20% doing rectal temperature. And I know that might not seem like a big deal, but that's eight or nine years of really hard work. And we're starting to get momentum, especially hospital-based athletic trainers, you know, hospitals that have like 30 athletic trainers that service like 30 high schools. Those, those physicians, those cutting-edge sports medicine physicians, those AMSSM physicians, um, they're, they're making sure those athletic trainers are doing rectal temperature. Um, and, and that's really, really pushing the momentum forward faster. Um, we're having more struggles when ATs go strictly through their school districts because the superintendents and principals don't really conceptualize how important this is, and they're not as supportive. But as again, as I said earlier in this podcast, we, when we go district by district, we have a lot of success. Um, but again, we're trying to, you know, scale this up at a much higher level. But that gives you an example of two of our challenges. I would echo both of those. Uh, certainly having an, a, a sports medicine physician or particularly an AMSSM sports medicine physician back the athletic trainers uh, on this. This is, you know, when I present on this as well, and I'm sure Fran would say the same thing, you know, when you mentioned, re- you know, obtaining a rectal temperature, that is one of the huge challenges. But without a doubt, when you look at the literature, it's the right thing to do to save lives. So it, it's a pretty easy argument, although it seems like it takes a lot of time for people to grasp the importance of it. Fran, I'm going to transition yeah. to you for, for my next question. In my opinion, returning a warfighter to duty safely after an exertional heat stroke is clearly vital and, and probably carries an, an even added level of importance as we compare it to just our everyday athletes. If you don't mind, can you explain to us what steps um, must be taken when, when the warfighter or athlete are ready to return to sport or activity after suffering an exertional heat stroke? Yes, that's a um, great question, and of course, this is um, what I do, and, and what I enjoy doing is uh, returning to duty. <clears throat> Warfighters have had problems with exertional heat illness or exertional rhabdo or sickle cell trait. Most of the time with exertional heat stroke, when I listen to the story, someone who's had an exertional heat illness, um, at about 80 to 90 percent of the time, you can figure it out. You know, Doug talked about a number of the things to contribute and how we can predict a lack of acclimatization, whether somebody was using a supplement, uh, had an argument with their girlfriend, didn't sleep that night, or they were ill, whatever it may be. Most of the time I can predict it. When I can't predict it uh, or explain it, that's that's when I get nervous and uh, start thinking about some advanced testing. But in looking at how you return someone from heat stroke, I think it's very analogous to someone who's had a concussion. And most physicians, uh, you know, know that paradigm fairly well. You've had a concussion. Uh, we wait until they're asymptomatic at rest. We may consider some testing at that time, like a neurocognitive test or a balance test. And then we slowly ramp up functional return to play with a concussion until they're ready to go back to contact. And it's, it's very comparable to heat stroke. Going back to concussion, I, I, one of my favorite quotes from Stan Herring is, you know, if you've seen one concussion, you've seen one concussion. And I think that parallels heat stroke. And as Doug and I both know, there are heat strokes and heat strokes. You can have a kid at uh, Quantico who might uh, have a temperature of 108, but he's cooled at the, within one minute of collapse, and the kids arose within a, you know, within a day. On the other hand, uh, there might be delayed cooling 30 to 45 minutes, and I've seen these cases, uh, boy, one case in particular, a uh, guy was in a medically induced coma for up to a month, and it took 18 months, you know, to return this young man to uh, to duty. So I know of only one guideline that's presently out there in the literature. That's the ACSM guideline that was published back in uh, 2007. 
talks about refraining from um, all activity after a heat stroke for seven days in the military. We, pe we put people on a uh, dead man's profile for two weeks. Um, after that time period, they're going to have a, a reassessment by the physician um, who's going to be looking for end organ damage, so we might check uh, renal function if there was evidence of acute kidney injury, liver function tests if there was evidence of hepatic injury, um, rhabdo labs if, if there was evidence of uh, muscle injury, uh, et cetera, and of course assessing cognitive status. And once those are normal, I think the single most important thing, and I know Doug would agree, is that kid does not go back to high school football practice where everybody else is. And that kid doesn't go back to duty uh, with the unit. No, they need now to reacclimatize, and they have a functional assessment in the military. We have a very formal graded return to duty where we reintroduce tasks, reintroduce helmets, reintroduce body armor, reintroduce PT tests. And when they pass through those gates, they may be finally ready for full return to duty because, like you said, Seth, now it has implications not only for the individual but also the team. And uh, it's not a game in, in what they may or may not be participating in. So it's a functional rehabilitation. It's the same thing that you see in the guideline with the American College of Sports Medicine. That young man or woman who has a heat stroke goes back to a functional uh, reassessment. That's going to be anywhere between two to three weeks um, after um, they've been cleared by the physician and they're slowly ramped up so they can return to duty. I think the next interesting thing becomes what if they don't make it? And it's been two weeks, or for us in the military, it's been uh, longer, and they can't make it, and they're struggling. That's where we consider things uh, like heat tolerance testing. Now, in the military, it's going to be the minority of people that we'd ever consider heat tolerance testing on. I know the Corey Stringer Institute with uh, Doug does heat tolerance testing. We do some heat tolerance testing. A number of foreign militaries do it, but it's going to be the vast minority of people who don't pass a functional Rated improvement uh, to return to play or return to duty, but when they don't, uh, I will pull the trigger on a, a heat tolerance test to get an idea on where that young man or woman is and then make a decision on what to do next. Doug, do you have a comment on that? Oh, I could definitely uh, <laughs> um, compliment Fran on, in this area because I don't think anyone has moved the dial forward more than you have in terms of returning a person following these exertional, um, you know, major conditions, whether it be rhabdo or a sickling crisis or a heat stroke. So I've definitely learned a lot from you, and I appreciate that. I think sometimes people are critical of heat tolerance testing because it might not have the sensitivity or specificity that they're looking for from other tests. But I think it's a bit short-sighted when people look at it from that perspective. I, I think, you know, I look at it in the most simple way possible, that if someone comes into our lab and you give them a simple challenge of walking in the heat, um, and they struggle doing that mightily, um, that just at least tells me this person definitely is not going to go back to duty, not going to be with their fellow warfighters, is not going to go back to the football practice field, and we need to really think about where they are in their recovery process. It's not necessarily telling us, you know, exactly what percent likelihood they're going to have a heat stroke again. Um, so it's for us, I think it's very helpful. And then also, as they are recovering, it's great to have this specific test like we have athletes come to us every three months or laborers or people, whoever we're testing, they'll come every three months and we'll do the same exact test over and over and over again for sometimes two years. And having that metric is super helpful because sometimes somebody reaches, you know, one of three and it takes them 25 minutes to do it. 
And then, you know, you know, after you work with them on fitness and heat acclimatization and all these other things, you're, you're getting an idea of, of how their tolerance changes um, across time. So it, for us, we find it to be quite valuable. And then we have other things we do besides for the classic, you know, Israeli Defense Force one. Um, but, but we just think it's super useful because, as Fran said before, every single case um, is its own unique challenge. And you have to work with each one based on that individual and everything they brought to the table beforehand and everything they're going to face after they leave you. And it's not, they're not entering a data set of, you know, 25 other people and and you're doing that recommendation. You're doing the recommendation for that person. So I completely concur. You've like, I've really been mentored a lot by you in this area. And I think it's helped KSI be a better organization and help a lot of people return to what they have to do, or at least return to life if they have continued struggles. Seth, I would add one thing. Uh, we know statistically that if you've had a heat stroke, that about uh, 15% of those individuals in the militaries, militaries across the world, will bounce and have a second heat stroke. Uh, and of course, that's my worst fear: is sending someone back out and they have, you know, another heat stroke, especially in close proximity. So uh, that's something to bear in mind. It can be recurrent, uh, and we want to try to mitigate against that. And I'm going to let me say one thing to support you, Sam, with that too is is what you said before. If you can't explain why the heat stroke takes place, I think that's the the ones that are going to be more likely to be that 15%. Because if there is something that makes a lot of sense, like I see, unfortunately, some really crazy coaches, whether they be strength and conditioning coaches or sport coaches, and they do like ridiculously hard things on the first day where they don't know anybody's fitness level, no one's heat acclimatized. They don't allow hydration for a couple hours. It doesn't surprise me that a couple people had a heat stroke in that practice. Um, And if we follow accepted scientific protocols for how you would begin the first few days of practice, I'm not going to worry about that person again in the future. Um, But as Fran noted earlier, sometimes they can't be explained from things that are kind of on the surface. And there might be other reasons that might predispose that person again in the future. And we really need to think about that. Yeah, just a quick anecdote, Seth. Once a month, we actually get together and review exertional cases, a group of uh, multidisciplinary physicians. And we had a case actually today of a guy who had had a heat stroke, unable to return. As soon as he's out in the heat, low level of heat exposure, he's very heat intolerant, struggling, muscles are cramping, having all sorts of difficulty. And so this was a kid, to me, unexplained to me. I have no clue what is going on with this guy and why he had a heat stroke at a low uh, level of intensity and why he continues to struggle uh, with problems, in particular muscle cramping and this heat intolerance at a low level activity. So when I can't explain it, we discuss it as a group. This is a young man that uh, we will probably move forward with muscle biopsy and consider testing for relationship with ling hyperthermia. Again, kind of an out-of-the-box type presentation and I would say, and I think Doug would agree, I mean, boy, 90% of the time plus, I can figure it out, you know, what it was that contributed. But when I can't, I'm, I'm looking for other clues and I'm thinking about, you know, acquired heat intolerance after a heat stroke that remains or some kind of metabolic myopathy um, or something like malignant hyperthermia. Well, I, I appreciate both of you speaking on the topic because this is a topic where there's not a significant amount of literature when you're really looking for how are we guiding return to activity, return to play, certainly in the secondary school level. But having seen how both of you do it, both uh, presentation-wise and in person, I think it's pretty impressive, you know, how both of you 
go about returning athletes and returning warfighters to play, and it's something that, that I think we can all use in our own practice to, to return people as safely as possible. Um, I'm going to close and give you kind of both the same question but a, a different uh, take on it. Uh, and, Doug, I'm going to start with you. Um, certainly in the civilian world, I feel like you and the, and the folks at KSI are really on the forefront of changes that are occurring on this topic. What exciting uh, components on this topic do you foresee in regards in the near future to improving the care of our athletes, our patients, our laborers, our warfighters with exertional heat illness or exertional heat stroke? Well, I mean, yeah, but I mentioned earlier with the team up for sports safety is we're making such massive strides with policy changes. That'd be one. But I think on the technology front, you know, I don't think we're too many years away from, um, you know, having even better ways. Like once we we can get like wearable technologies that could do hydration status and body temperature assessment, um, where an athletic trainer might have an iPad and, and know the hydration status or the body temperature of the people while they're out there participating. I know that seems to some people like that's sci-fi, but um, trust me, because we're doing a ton of wearable technology research right now in our labs, um, you know, that maybe three or five years from now, we might have a better capacity to have real-time data that's accurate, um, that we can, you know, one, prevent things from happening, you know, do a, a lot more to prevent them from happening in the first place. Um, so I, I see a lot of excitement. I tell my PhD students all the time that I wish I was getting into the profession now, um, because I think that the leaps that we're going to make from a technology standpoint in the next, like, 10 years is going to be equal to what we've done in the last 50 years. That's great. And certainly seeing some of the technology that you guys have been researching and dealing with, it, it, I agree, is it, very exciting. Fran, in regards to the military, I feel like the, you know, the use of WBGT for work-to-rest ratios and heat acclimatization protocols I feel like the military is typically years ahead of the civilian world in regards to heat safety recommendations, and I'm going to give you kind of the same questions. You get the privilege of kind of having a sneak peek at, at what the military is doing. Is there anything you can describe or, or discuss with us of some of the steps that the military has taken to improving the care of uh, warfighters and laborers and athletes uh, with exertional heat stroke? Yeah, a couple things. You know, one of the things that uh, the military research community is doing is more and more modeling trying to do a better job of prediction so that they can make appropriate activity modification. You know, the military has very structured uh, flag system based on WGBT and then a prescribed workload and a hydration cycle. So there is more advanced modeling going on uh, right now and, and being tested to get better prediction so that we can do a better job of prevention. But uh, I would like to share that, you know, one of the things we're working on you know, in our lab at CHAMP is, again, continuing to focus on, on this return to duty, return to play scenario. And I'm, I'm just a knucklehead primary care physician, you know, again, trying to struggle with identifying who's high risk, who's low risk, who's the kid that I need to worry about, who can I clear, who do I need to really worry about. So we're working on uh, developing a scoring system uh, right now by following a number of heat strokes and what we're doing with our workups uh, so that we'll have a scoring system on the future, in the future that a sports medicine physician could look, could look at the scoring system, almost like a well score for a PE, and figure out, okay, this kid is high risk. This one I'm going to consider uh, maybe, you know, getting a uh, heat tolerance test at the Corey Stringer Institute or calling Corey Stringer. Uh, this kid I, I have no issue with. This kid I'm going to need a little more prolonged recovery. We're looking at uh, a lot of genomics at this point. The day may come, you know, that, that there's some serum test uh, that would be able to classify you as heat tolerant either before an activity or after so that you could be assured 
uh, when someone goes out to uh, re-engage in exercise. And we're actually exploring right now uh, in, a, in a project we, we're engaged in is exhaled gases. So with exhaled gases, you do have the ability to do some proteomics that you can, might actually be able to assess, uh, again, some kind of status of heat tolerance. So I think there are going to be more and more tools to help providers uh, with this return to duty, return to play question, other than just uh, flipping a coin and say, yeah, I think you can go back now. Uh, so that's where I see it going. Perfect. I, I think the return to duty, return to play is significant literature on that topic is is definitely needed for for returning returning people to to duty and to activity safely. I, I think that's it for my end. Is there anything else either of you would like to add before we close tonight? I certainly thank both of you for your time. I know I'm good. I thank you so much for the opportunity. No, uh, same thing, Seth. And uh, I, I think the single most important thing that I have found over the last uh, boy, probably 15, 20 years is collaboration, and it's uh, it's a team approach. And I, I've certainly learned uh, a tremendous amount uh, from Doug Casa and the ATCs because it's a team that's going to make a difference. Yeah, I totally agree. I've learned so much from each of you, and I, I've learned a ton from our ATs and, and just collaborating and working together. And it's amazing how much you can accomplish uh, as a team as opposed to a single person. So. I certainly look forward to seeing each of you in person soon whenever we see what the world looks like on the other side of this. So this concludes our uh, AMSSM sportscast for tonight. I'd like to thank both uh, Dr. Casa and Dr. O'Connor for taking time out of their busy schedules to discuss uh, the topic of exertional heat illness, particularly exertional heat stroke. And I'd like to encourage everyone to please join us for the next uh, AMSSM sportscast.